If you'll turn again with me to Genesis chapter 32, we're going to look at verses 22 uh, and following. So uh, if you're physically able, if you could stand with me as we read the, uh, the word of the living God. Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. And he, meaning Jacob, arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and set over, over what he set them over what he had. And then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go before the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob. But Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip of the socket, the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Uh, that's the word of the living God. May you be seated, please. Thank you so much for your reverence for his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we rejoice and praise your glorious name. This is a day that you have made, and we'll rejoice and be glad in it. And Lord, we're grateful that we can rest in confidence that you are sovereign over every day. They don't just happen because you put things in motion and then took your hand off of things. You not only created, but you're involved in your creation. And Lord, we're grateful for that. Thankful, thankful that with all the confusion that seems to be around us, all the uncertainty and the doubt and the fear, None of those are ours as your children because we know that you're in charge. God is in control. You work all things out to the counsel of your will. And Lord, we're grateful that whether we submit to your rule does not change your rule one iota. And Lord, we, uh, we often resist. But God, may you use this narrative today to change hearts. Because there's some of us right now, they're in the middle of a wrestling match as we'll see in a few moments, and some of us are going to go into one. And Father, I pray that, that, uh, that as you uh, show us uh, your love and your grace and your mercy and the intimacy that it takes to wrestle with somebody, that uh, from we emerge from that, dead to our old way of living, and fully surrendered to the great God of it all, who redeemed us through the blood of your Son, and we praise you. And so, Lord, take this time. Thank you for our graduates. We're so grateful that all of them uh, have diligently completed their studies, but they've also followed you and they're, they're after you. And Father, we just I, I, the best thing that we can pray for them is that, um, is that uh, they would abide in you. And if they do, and we believe with confidence they will, 
they'll bear much fruit. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. And by fruit, you're glorified. That their lives, through bearing fruit for the kingdom, would bring glory to your great name. And wherever you send them and wherever you dispatch them, God, some of them uh, know already where they're going and some of them are still seeking you about the next step. And I know you'll give direction and guidance and you'll use them to be salt and light to point people to your blessed Son through their actions and through their words, their attitude, and the power of walking in the Spirit. We look forward to what you're going to do through their lives. And we thank you for their parents and how they invested over years and prayed and sought you and raised them in the nurture and admonition of you. And we thank you for the fact that they can celebrate now that, um, that good seed went into good soil and we can expect a good harvest. We love you, Jesus. We praise you and worship you. Thank you for first loving us. In your sweet name we pray. Amen. A little outline here for this, what really is kind of a strange story in the Bible. And we're going to look at it, but we're going to look at the distress. We're going to look at the duel that took place. We're going to look at the designation. We're going to look at the delight. We're going to look at the direction. And we're going to look at the dullness. That's our outline that we're going to pursue. And you might want to, if you've got a pen in tow, you might want to jot some notes down here in your Bible about some of the meanings of the word in this story. But you'll recall, and let's kind of do a little background here, uh, Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, has come to a point in his life where he's at the most distressed night of his life. This is the most uh, scary point and darkest night of his life up until, this, until, until this point. The reason it's such a dark night is because the next day he's going to face his brother Esau. You'll recall in the Bible that Jacob was uh, just an average, normal man, but Esau was a man's man. Esau was a burly, hunter-type guy. He was, a, he was a, a force to be contended with and could, with no problem, take care of Jacob. And the last time they had interaction together, it wasn't good. Uh, what Jacob had done, you'll recall, is he swindled and cheated and deceived Esau out of his birthright. They were twins. They were born uh, at the same time. But Esau came out first, and he had all the rights of a firstborn son, a double portion of the estate. A double portion of blessing as a result of being the firstborn. Jacob, however, uh, cheated him out. You remember the story of the uh, of the birthright, and then went into his father's uh, presence and uh, pretended to be Esau, and uh, got his father's blessing, and thus seized the birthright. The thing about Jacob, though, is is that God promised he'd have the birthright anyway. God had promised the birthright to Jacob. But the character and nature of Jacob, and the reason it's so important to understand that is, is because God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. But when you have a promise from God, we not only trust God to fulfill His promise, but we trust it to do it in His timing and in His way. And Jacob, true to form, with his entire life, he took matters into his own hands. He decided to help God out. Every time in my life I've ever tried to help God out, I wound up sorry for and rather than resting and trusting in God to get the birthright that God had already promised him, he took matters into his own hands and swindled and cheated and deceived. As a matter of fact, his, his name means deceiver. His name means the heel catcher because he grabbed the heel of Esau when he came out of the womb. He was always trying to fool, trick, and deceive. He spent his entire life getting. He spent his entire life looking out for number one. If he had an interest, his interest was always superior to those around him. 
And he was going to make sure that he got taken care of. He was going to make sure that his plan went forward. We know in the scriptures that the reason that the birthright and the birth blessing went to the second born is it is a picture of the new life that a believer has in Christ. God always works through the second birth. And so that's why he winds up with the blessing and God, God decrees because it's a picture of the fact that the first birth condemns us. We were born into sin. But when we're made aware by the Spirit of the living God of our sinful nature and our sinful state and the judgment it deserves, and we repent toward God and put our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, the Bible says we're born again. And God only works through the second birth. So that's the spiritual truth behind the fact that the second, birth, second born son got the blessing. It's the same thing happened with Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn son. He doesn't get the blessing. Isaac gets the blessing. It's to show the coming salvation that would be granted through Jesus Christ, our substitute, who died on the cross to pay for our sins. And so the reason it's so important and applicable to us today of what happened to Jacob, I want you to listen to this. Here is a man, we find him in his life of 20 years worth of rebellion and being out of fellowship with God. Now we didn't say out of relationship with God. We said out of fellowship with God. Time and again we've talked about it when we do the Lord's Supper. That our relationship with Jesus, once we repent toward God and put our faith in His Son and we're born again of the Spirit of God and we become Christians, that's eternal. That's an eternal transaction. That is forever. We didn't merit it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But once we're born into the family of God, the relationship is eternal, but the fellowship, the fellowship can often go back and forth. The fellowship is based upon holy living. The fellowship is based upon a heart that's bent toward God, that's pursuing Him, like the book that we just gave the graduates, that's going after Him and walking in obedience to His will. The fellowship then is enjoyed by the believer. But we see a picture of Jacob, a believer who had been out of fellowship with God for 20 years now. He's basically been on the run. He's been swindling and cheating all along. He's the type of guy, like we talked about, that was going to see that his interests were met and preserved above all others. You would not want him as a next door neighbor. And so, here we come, after 20 years out of being out of fellowship with God, he comes to the most distressing night of his life. That's the distress we look at. Look at verse 22. He arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. Here's where you might want to put a note in your Bible. That word Jabbok means emptying. It means emptying. All of these words have significance in the narrative. So at the place of emptying. And so he took them, he took his family, he sent them over the brook, and set over what he had, set over what that he had his possessions. And then Jacob was left alone. Jacob was at the board of Jabbok, a board of being emptied of all of the promise that his swindling, his conniving will not get him out of this one. The next day, he is to meet his brother Esau, a burly man who was probably not going to be very happy with him because he had cheated him out of his birthright. He didn't know what to expect. He thought that maybe even his life was in jeopardy. 
Maybe Esau would be so enraged and so upset at him that he might even kill him. And so on this night of great distress, he comes to the place of emptying. And he realizes that no matter how slick his presentation, no matter how good of a salesman he's always been, and he was a good salesman, and no matter how good of a manipulator he's always been, and he was a manipulator, he wasn't not going to be able to sell himself out of this one or manipulate out of himself out of this one. He was at the mercy of the court. And at this place of emptying, he's there and he's left alone. He's left alone. He is a believer. He is a believer. He has a relationship with God, but he's out of fellowship with God. As a matter of fact, he'd been out of fellowship with God for so long. You know what he did? He fathered ten rebellious children during those years. As a matter of fact, he had a total of twelve children, and those twelve children became the, uh, the uh, first of the tribes, of the twelve tribes of, of, uh, of Israel. But the ten that were raised during this time of being out of fellowship and rebellion are the ones that sold their younger brother into slavery. You think there might be a connection between the two? That he's out of fellowship with God and while he's out of fellowship with God, what's he doing? He's raising children that went on to come out of fellowship with God. And the two that came after that were not so. These are the ones that sold him into slavery. This is what happened during his time of rebellion. But yet he gets to the place where he's empty and he gets to the place where he's alone. Can I tell you the reason why he was alone, I believe? Until God can get us alone and get us to the place where we're out of fellowship with Him, we get us to the place where we have nobody else to blame for our plight except ourselves. Boy, we are an expert at shifting blame. We live in a society that is based on that. We're going to blame somebody else for our plight. We're going to blame somebody else for our fellowship, being out of fellowship. We're going to blame somebody else for our rebellion. We're going to blame somebody else for our sin. But he's empty. He's emptied of all the schemes. Won't work for him now. He's in a state of distress. This is a distressing night for him. And he's left alone there. And he's looking around. And he's by himself. And he has nobody else to blame for his plight except for his disbelief, his rebellion, and his deep, deep pride. You know what? When you get to the point in the ebb and flow of Christian living and we're out of fellowship with God, and maybe nobody knows it. Maybe everybody around us would think we're in fellowship with God. But we know better. Maybe there's bitterness or unforgiveness that we've been hanging on to. Maybe there's some habitual sin that we just won't let go of. Maybe we're living in disbelief because we know that back when God told me to do something, change careers, alter the course, obey Him in this area, and I refuse to obey Him. And you and God are the only one who knows about it. And God meets us at the place of emptying, the place of the Lord of Jabbok. He leaves us there alone. And at that place alone, we've got nobody else to blame for our sin and our plight except ourselves. And then a man, and you'll notice in verse 24, it says, Then a man, and the man is in capital letters, wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This is the duel. We saw the distress because the next day he's going to meet Esau. And he didn't know what that was going to hold for him, but he had a good sure bet that it wasn't going to be good. Now we see the duel. The duel. Now we see man wrestling with God. When it says in capital letters that was man, it's talking about God. And when he saw that he did not prevail, God did not prevail against him. He touched him on the socket of his hip and just broke his hip. He injured his hip. The socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint. He disjointed his hip. 
as he wrestled with him, God did that to him. And then God said, let me go for the day breaks. Let me go. Now, I just want to prove to you that we know that that is God. Let's look at Hosea. Let's look. Go turn right and go to the prophet Hosea. And we're going to look at uh, Hosea chapter 12. Chapter 12. And we're going to be looking in verses 2 through 5. Ezra, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you find, I mean Ezekiel, I mean. If you find Ezekiel and Daniel, you're in the neighborhood. Ezekiel, Daniel, then Hosea comes after that. Okay? I know it's a hard one to find, so take a moment and just find it if you will. Uh, we're looking at Hosea chapter 12. We're looking at verses 2 through 5. Speaking of Israel's history, it says, The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. That's Jacob. Remember the heel catcher. It talks about when they were born. And in his strength, he struggled with who? God. Yes, he struggled with the angel, and the angel should be in capital letters, and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him, and he found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. And that is who? The Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So we know that this is God he was wrestling with. And in the wrestling match, it is the same wrestling match that you and I go through. It's the same contention that we go through. We wrestle with God over who is going to be Lord of our life. Now this is not a believer. This is not wrestling about salvation. This is not wrestling about repentant faith in Christ. This is, a, this is, about, this is not somebody being saved. This is a believer who's out of fellowship, who's about to get back, get back into fellowship. This is about a believer who constantly took matters into his own hands, did things his own way, and gave lip service to following God. This is a believer whose lips give affirmation of following God, but his heart's far from him. This is the state of this man. And they get into this wrestling match. The thing about this is, is in wrestling matches, and we've talked about this narrative before, but it's kind of like, it, it, you've got to know that it's like, since he was wrestling with God, it's like when I get home at night, and if Andrew wants to wrestle with me, and he and I are in the living room together, and he constantly wants to wrestle. And so we'll start wrestling together. And even though he thinks that I'm using my full strength, I'm holding back. Because my size compared to Andrew's size, if I make one false move, we'll never see him again. And so I'm, even though I'm going after Andrew, and it's a relationship building thing for Andrew and I, as a matter of fact. We, have, we enjoy that together. We wrestle together and have a good time and tumble and wrestle and what have you, just like you do with your children. But I don't use every, all my strength against Andrew. I hold back and I make him think that I'm spot on. You know what I mean? Because he thinks, man, I'm making time with my dad. And there'll come a time when I can't hang with him. There's, it's not long from now, I don't think, to be honest with you. But right now, I'm the, I'm the, if it weren't for me restraining back my strength against Andrew, I, I, I would injure him. I would hurt him. This is the kind of wrestling match that's going on here. God in his sovereignty and his power, could wipe Jacob out, just like Jim affirmed a few moments ago. He could have discouraged him. He could have taken his life. He could have rolled over on him. In less than a bat of an eye, God could have removed him. But the wrestling speaks of the intimacy, and it speaks of the restraining power of God over his own to show them the love, grace, mercy, and compassion, and patience that he has with every last one of us. When you're tempted to be impatient with others, it would help you 
to just reflect on how God has been patient with you. It really would. It'd do a world of good for you when you get impatient with others to just reflect just for a moment at how patient God's been with me and you. Has He been that way? Has He been forbearing? Has He been merciful? Has He been good? Has He been gracious? In the middle of our rebellion and pride, you better believe it. Time and again He's done that. I know He's done that in my life. So the wrestling talks about intimacy. The wrestling talks about getting to know one another. The wrestling talks about communion. Even though there's an adversarial thing going on between the flesh and the spirit. And even though Jacob is starting to make hay and starting to seem like he's going to prevail. And then God strikes him and dislocates his hip just to show him who really is in charge. And Jacob lost the battle, but in losing it, he really won. Because the Bible says this, a lesser man... Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The paradox of Christian living is, is when you give up and you lose and you die, that's when you begin to live. And so God prevailed and He gave him a lifelong, a lifelong memorial of the fact that God prevailed. You know why? Because he walked differently from that day forward. Boy, isn't that the point? That God, you're in a wrestling match with God right now. Some of you in here right now are in a wrestling match with God. There's some things that you're just holding on to that you know are not right. It could be bitterness. It could be anger. It could be fear. It could be distrust and rebellion. Not being faithful with finances. It could be... It could be, a, a, again, rebellion against what God's clearly told you to do. A course direction. Something that you should be doing that you know you're not doing. And nobody knows it except you and the Lord. And God struck him there and there that, during that duel and let him know. Because you know what happens? The flesh contends against the Spirit. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Look verses 16 through 18. Turn to the New Testament if you will. And let's look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're looking at verses 16 through 18. Galatians chapter 5. See, Jacob was cunning enough up until this point, and he was, he was sophisticated enough, and he was savvy enough to swindle and cheat and deceive and get him out of self out of one mess after the other. And he really, honestly, did not need God. He thought. But he'd come up to this place, and you know what? Maybe that's your testimony. Maybe that's some of mine. That, you know what, there are just certain things that we seem like we can kind of handle well. There's some of you who are in here who are more forgiving than others. Maybe forgiveness is not as big of an issue as it is with somebody else in this place. And maybe there's another issue that they have that they don't have quite the struggle that you do. But Jacob didn't need God, really. Not really, up until this time that he needed him here. And this is the war that's going on. This is the wrestling match. Look at this in verse 16. It say, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. They're wrestling one with another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And he said, listen, there's a lust that goes on. The flesh lusts against the Spirit. What are they lusting for? They're lusting for control. Who is going to rule? Who is going to reign? Who is going to have authority? Who is going to call the shots? Who's it going to be? 
And up until this time, the wrestling match that Jacob went through that culminated this divine wrestling match to happen in Genesis 32, Jacob was in control. But things were about to change. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 32. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 32. And we find the wrestling match. We've seen the distress at the the ford of Jabbok. Now we've seen the duel. And now we're going to see the designation. After, after the Lord said, listen, let me go for the day breaks. Let me go. You're still contending. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. There came a time in the narrative. It's one of my favorite in John chapter 5. And Jesus was looking at the, talking to several people. Hundreds were following him. And he began to talk to them about spiritual truth. He said, you want to tell you something? The Spirit gives life, but the flesh, I'm sorry, John chapter 6. He said, the Spirit gives life, but the flesh profits nothing. He began to tell them, unless you drink of my blood and you eat of my body, you can have no part with me. And he was speaking spiritual truth to them, but they were trying to process it with physical thinking, human thinking. And the Bible records that at that time, everybody stopped following him except the twelve. He looks over at the twelve, this little handful that are still following, and he said, you guys are going to leave too? And Peter spoke up and said, where else are we going to go? You're the one. We've come to know and believe, he said earlier. And he said, you're the one who has eternal life. Where else are we going to go? You are God. That's the kind of faith he was trying to draw out of them. Because he had put it in them. And he wanted to draw it out of them. God's constantly putting us in certain circumstances to draw faith out of us. If it's real and it's legitimate and it's there. And that was what was happening here. God was holding on. Is he going to ask me to bless him? Is he going to ask me to go forward with this? Is he going to ask me? Is he going to give up? Is he going to get discouraged because he was beat here? Is he going to let go? Let me tell you what, why is that happening. The enemy will harass you with your past failures and he will so harass you with your past failures that you'll give up and you'll say, that's just it. I'm done. I'm tired of the struggle. And since God prevailed, he could have just said, you know what? I've been such a sorry swindler all my life. I guess I'll get up tomorrow and I'll get what Jacob has for me, what Esau has for me. Because after all, I've got it coming. And God said, let me tell you something. Come after me, buddy. Come after me. Don't stop. Don't stop. I prevailed not to run you over. I prevailed to give you victory. I will impart victory to you. Come after me. The Bible says when a man who knows anything about Christ falls, when the righteous man falls, he gets up. When a righteous man sins, he confesses his sins, he repents toward God, comes into agreement with God, he gets his forgiveness, he gets cleansed, and guess what? He moves on. So my mother, we think to go through some kind of penitence period where we just get out and get away and think that we don't deserve to follow Christ or we don't deserve a part to have part and parcel to His promises is simply not from the Lord. And Jacob still had some tenacity and some faith left here. And look what he said. I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, God said to him, what's your name? Why did God ask him his name? You think God didn't know his name? You know why I ask him? What's your name, Jacob? Who have you been depending on all this time? You're a swindler. You're a deceiver. You're a, you're a, you're a one who usurps authority. You're stubborn. You're prideful. I want you to repeat it. Just let me, just let me hear it. Just let me hear it. Let's hear. 
How you've been acting. Who have you been? Who have you been operating out of? Out of the flesh. I want to hear it. So that you can understand what it's gotten you. It's gotten you this night of distress. It's gotten you to the point where your brother's ready to kill you. You've stolen everything that I was willing to give you if you would have just waited on me. What is your name? How have you been acting, buddy? And he said, my name is Jacob. And he said, yeah, it is. But you know what the Lord said? Look at the delight. This is the delight. And he said, you... You shall no longer be called Jacob, but you will be called Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. You have notes in your Bible, I am sure, as to what Israel means right there. And everything that I can glean from this, I believe that truly the way that word is constructed and the way it appears elsewhere in Scripture and the context in which it appears, the best definition of that word, Israel, is this. God commands. God commands. God rules. God orders my life. He went from a swindler and a deceiver to one who says God commands. He is Lord. He is sovereign. I Submit. But the Lord gave him a new name. In the typology or the types of Scripture, Hannah, and you look at the Scriptures and you say, okay, Abraham is a picture of God the Father. Isaac is a picture of God the Son because Abraham offered up Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 on Mount Moriah and he held up that spear and he was going to put it into his son and it was a picture of Calvary that would happen hundreds of years later. And Jacob is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And now that the Holy Spirit lives in us, we have a brand new identity. And we need not be bound up with what used to bind us. Attitudes that have harassed us all our lives. Sin that's beset us. Temptation. Things that we fall to time and again need not happen anymore. Just don't try to handle it through Jacob. Let God win. Let God prevail. How do you see prevail? He prevails by faith. How does He do it? By grace and mercy and goodness. And then Jacob said, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said to him, Why do you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. Curious response, isn't it? Tell me your name now, God. He said, You don't need to ask about my name. You don't have to ask about my name because I just told you my name. Look at verse 29 or 28. It says, He said, This is God speaking to Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with who? God. Listen to me, buddy. Listen, the same thing that got you in the mess that you were in, (coughs) you're asking me to repeat and shore up truth I've already given you. I've already given it to you. I told you, you struggled with God. Need not repeat it again. It's with me. This is the identity. Let my word be enough. If we've ever lived in an age where we've got to have something else besides the Scriptures, it's now. Some kind of sensual, some kind of manifestation, some kind of experience, some kind of something. God, you've got to prove something to me. You know what we are? We're the same crowd that oftentimes we can act like the crowd who was standing at the base of the cross and they said, Jesus, come down off of that cross and thereby prove that you're God and then we'll believe. Well, let's think that through. Raising Lazarus from the dead didn't work. Taking a withered hand and making it strong again didn't work. 
Taking a leper and cleansing them from leprosy didn't work. Giving sight to blind eyes didn't work. Do you think for one minute, do you think for one minute that Him coming off of that cross would have worked? You think that would have produced belief? So much so that even with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it's a, it's a phenomenal way that Jesus ends that parable. Or maybe a real story, we don't know. But at the end of it, you know what He says? He says to the rich man, Amber, because the rich man tenders a request. He said, listen, okay, here's the deal. If I cannot get out of this torment and this suffering, the rich man was in hell. If I can't get out of this, because God informed me, you can't get out. It's eternal. He said, well, if I can't get out of here, I've got some brothers, I've got some family members who live just like I used to live and have completely ignored you. Will you let, will you please, please send Lazarus back to tell them about how to avoid this place? Now that seems like a good evangelism strategy, doesn't it? You would think. I mean, you would think that would get people's attention. Lazarus goes to heaven, comes back. The dead man, everybody knows about his plight. He was standing there. and He died there in front of everybody on the street with dogs licking his sores. He comes back for the dead and says, Listen, there is a heaven, there is a hell. The rich man went to hell, I went to heaven, and here's how you go to heaven. You know what Jesus told him? You remember what he told him? He said, if they have not believed the testimony of Scripture, if they have not believed what I've already given them, they will not believe even if a man comes back from the dead. So he said, I beg you, we have the whole counsel of God's Word right here. Let it be enough. Don't, 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 don't succumb to the temptation to say, come on down here. Prove it to me again. That's what Jacob, he was almost tempted to do that. God, tell me your name again now. Let me make sure that, that tell me your name again. Tell me your name. And God said, I don't need to speak it again. You take what I've already given you. Anchor your faith in what I've already given you. Because the fact that you want more, the fact that you've got to have something else, that's, the, that's how your life got started wrong in the first place. I told you I was going to give you the birthright. I told you it belonged to you. And rather than waiting on me to do it, you took matters into your own hands and did it yourself because my word wasn't good enough. Jacob, don't do that again. Do you see it? I've already told you who I am. And look what he says. Now we look at the direction. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. Peniel means face to face with God. Job 42.5 says this. Job 42.5 says, you know what? I've heard about you. And I know about you. But now I've seen you. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah was commissioned to go and be the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, he sees God and lives to tell it. That was the marvel. What Jacob was saying was, Israel now is, I've lived, I've lived, I have seen God face to face, and I've lived to tell it. Why? How could anybody, anybody, see God face to face and live to tell it? Because they have to die. They have to die to themselves and trust Christ as our mediator. There's one God, one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. He was trusting Christ. It's habitual throughout the Scriptures that when somebody came to face to face with God, God's holiness exposed their unholiness and they died and through His benevolent grace He let them live. Hallelujah to His name. And look, so this is the new direction. There's a new direction. 
And it says this. We've looked at the delight. Now let's look at the direction. He said, just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. He's got a new walk. He's got a new gait. So it's been often said before, and I heard Chuck Swindoll say this one time, and I thought it was a wonderful saying, and we've talked about it before. And that is that most people are too big for God to use. Most people are too big for God to use. He had to be downsized. He had to, he had to, he had to, he had to understand his limitations. And he has nothing but limitations. And dear ones, you and I have nothing but limitations. And the only way to tap into God's availability is to renounce our pride. And accurately assess who we are. <coughs> the Bible says it this way in John 15:5. Jesus said, I am the vine and you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. He was given a great gift, wasn't he? He was given the opportunity, just like George, and it's a wonderful life. George Bailey gets to see what life was like without him. And this angel that came to him said, you've been given a wonderful gift, George. You've been able to see what it was like and you've never been born. Well, to be honest with you, he was given a wonderful gift. That was to, was to see what was like, life would be like from there on out to live as if he'd been reborn. You know what? If God's got you, if God's got you at Jabbok, he wants to turn it to Benihim. And he's got some of you there right now. He's got some of you there right now. There's a wrestling match going on. There's a contention going on. God, am I going to hang on to this unforgiveness and pride? Am I going to hang on to this bitterness? Am I going to let it overtake my family? Am I going to let this over disbelief take over my family? And am I going to continue to resist your revealed will in my life? Am I going to continue to hold on to my finances and not relate, release them to you? Am I going to continue to hold on to the fact that I'm often ashamed of you and never bear witness to your glorious name? Am I going to continue to hold on to my time and reserve it for me and just preserve, pursue what I want? Am I going to try to do my work my way and put your name on it? He gave him a memorial and he gave him a new direction. And after that time, he walked differently. And all dear ones, that's what Jesus wants out of, the, out, of the, out of meeting us at Jabbok. He wants to take Jabbok and turn it to a aisle and he wants to give us a different walk. And that walk has a limp. And that is not to remind him of his sin, but it's to remind him of who's in control. God doesn't remind us of sin. He doesn't throw it back. He doesn't change. You know what? God has been said before, and it's so true. God doesn't alter your past. He just alters the meaning of it. Whereas before, it was a stick for Satan to beat you over the head with and condemn you. And now, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, it's a reason to rejoice. Because look what I overcame through the Lord Jesus Christ of the blood of the Lamb. I am not an overcome person, I'm an overcomer. And I've got this limp just to show and just to remind me of the fact that God's sovereignly in charge of my life and He met me at a wrestling match called Jabbok and turned it to Benial. I've seen Him face to face and I'm going to tell you something right now, I'll never be the same. I want you to look at the curious turn and we'll close. We've looked at the delight, we've looked at the direction and now we're going to look at the dullness. Look at verse 32. It says, Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank which is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of the Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. And we look at that and we think, okay, well maybe that was a pretty noble thing. Now they've got a memorial. 
Pat, he had one. He now walks differently. And now they're trying to erect a memorial. But do you know what? Never in Scripture do we see in the law of Moses or anywhere else where they're ever told to do this. They made this up on their own. Oh, we'll not eat that portion because that's where Jacob, you know, we're not going to mess with that portion there because we're going to build a we're going to build an idol. And it became an idolatrous act. It became a memorial. You know why? Because it became a it, they they hang on, they hung on to the ritual and forgot the reality. And we do that all the time. The Christian life is not about what we can do for Christ. The Christian life is being rightly related to God through Christ and then letting him flow through us whatever he will. But the the ethic, the summit, the purpose, the objective is to know Him. I've heard somebody say before, and an honest pastor before he got saved, and I was reading some of his writing this past week and greatly enjoyed it. And one of the things he said was, is all my life I realized I thought I was seeking God only to stand back in my tracks and realize I was seeking what God could give me. I wasn't seeking God. And that's where we are. We've not come to believe that Jesus Christ is enough. That Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. That the Scriptures were to lead us to Christ. Not about Him, but to Him. To have an intimate walk. To be motivated by worship. To get up every day and expect this. Today, wherever I go and wherever life carries me, I am going to walk in fellowship with my God. I'm going to spend time with Him and not view it to be a yoke around my neck. I'm going to crack open the Word. And before I ever ask Him about direction, I just want to ask Him about Him. What do you like, God? Thank You for loving me as big and giant as You are and all the things You're beginning to show me. I know You. This is eternal life that they may know Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ to Thou hast sent. Eternal life is not a time frame. It is a condition. It's being rightly ready to God through His Son. And He gives all the gifts because He is the gift. They were enamored with gift giving. God, what can you do for us? God, what can you do for us? Nana, nana, boo, boo. They would take what God did for them and they begin to worship it. Let me give you an example. You remember in the wilderness when they held up the serpent? Everybody's dying. There's a plague, and Moses said, or God said, hold up the serpent in the middle of the wilderness, and everybody who looks upon the serpent will be healed. Everybody. All you got to do is look at it. Jesus told us in the New Testament that that was a picture of the cross. Because He said, John chapter 12, Just as surely as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, if I be lifted up, I will draw them in unto me. He was talking about the cross. That was a picture of the cross. He said, don't work for it. Don't run around the building seven times and then chant and say five prayers. Don't go read your Bible six chapters a week for one week and then you'll be saved. Just look at the cross because it's not your Word that saves you. It's His. And it was a picture of the cross. And they held that thing up. Do you know what they wind up doing with it? They wind up worshiping it. They kept it. And they got a name for it. They called it Nehushtan. And they kept it. And all the way up until Hezekiah's time, they used it as an idolatrous relic to worship. And that's what they did with this memorial here in Jacob's Hill. They, they were into ritual, but they weren't into relationship. And my goodness alive, that's why our Christian life seems so dull and out of touch and boring and something that nobody would want to emulate. The Bible says that our lives should adorn the gospel. Our lives should make the gospel attractive to others. And the reason it's not attractive is is because we're about ritual, ritual, but not relationship. 
And you know what happened in Hezekiah's time when he made reforms in 2 Kings chapter 18? He destroyed that relic. You're talking about bold? Putty. Man, that's like changing organs. Or making the piano on this side worth of the that side. Or maybe changing the color of carpet of the church. Or maybe handing out different plates. Or maybe doing something differently than what you used to do. Goodness gracious alive, we can't do that. We've got to worship that. That's what got us here. It's got to be done this way. It's got to be. Because our trust lies there. We started worshiping that. God's people habitually did stuff like that. He destroyed it. He said, no, it's to worship Him. share one thing with you and then we're going to close and we have prayer. <clears throat> Jabbok and Peniel are the same place. The word Jabbok was changed to Peniel. Same place. Maybe like changing Kennesaw to another name. Same place. Take Petersburg and what it used to be. Leningrad is the same place. It's the same place. You see, wherever you are right now, it's where God wants to do His greatest work. The transition took place at the same place. The location didn't change. But Jacob did. Constantly lured into thinking, man, if I could just change this, if I could just change that, if I had a different mate... If I had a different situation, if I had a different job, a different this, a different that, if geography changed, if that would change, if that person would just start acting this way, if that person would just start acting the way I know they ought to work, and the way they ought to act, and the way that you know they ought to act, God, and if you would change them right now, I would change. That's not true. That's not true. If God can't change you right here and right now, then you've missed the point. It's God's sovereign grace and sovereign will to change you right here and right now. He can flat do it. Are any of you wrestling with Him? Unforgiving spirit. Rank and file pride. Disbelief. You know, the Bible says unless you believe, you'll not be established. And a sorry attitude toward another believer. Unforgiveness or resentment toward another believer. And then at the same time say, I'm right with God. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Don't be fooled. The worst side of deceit there is is self-deceit. It's the worst kind. Now, if you continue to, and I've got everybody else to blame for it until God gets you to the point and you let Him get to the point where you're at Jabbok, which is the place of emptying, and you're there alone, and you realize that the only person that needs to wrestle with God and the only person that's causing me problems is the person that's staring me back in the mirror. And let God deal with that guy. Let that guy your Jabbok will remain a Jabbok. But God wants to take Jabbok, empty him, and make it penile, filling. That's what he wants to do. What will it be? What will it be?